Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center and our director, Father Charles Trulos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight in person and online and to introduce Ryan T. T. Anderson and Sharif Gerges, authors of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. Ryan is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy at the Heritage Foundation and the founder and editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, dedicated to ethics, law, and the common good. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, among others, and he has appeared on ABC, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, and the Fox News Channel. Sharif, a Princeton graduate and Rhodes Scholar, is a research scholar at the Witherspoon Institute. He has written on social issues in academic and popular venues, including public discourse, National Review, Commonweal, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He has spoken at more than 80 lectures, conferences, and debates. He is currently completing his dissertation in philosophy at Princeton. Tonight, Ryan and Sharif join us to discuss their new book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, and will explore the hard questions surrounding the religious liberty debate. And with that, please join me in welcoming Ryan T. Anderson and Sharif Gerges. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for having us, I guess. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit about religious liberty. He's going to say a little bit about discrimination, and then we'll leave a lot of time for Q&A. I think the most striking thing about doing this book is realizing that 10 or 15 years ago, let's say 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible. And it wouldn't have been possible not because the debate was too heated then and you wouldn't have been able to get two sides to write a book together, but because there was almost no debate on the value of religious liberty as something that you should care about, whether you're conservative or liberal, whether you're secular or religious. In the 90s, there was a Supreme Court case called Employment Division versus Smith, which was seen as being hostile to religious liberty, seemed to narrow the protections that you get under the Constitution's Free Exercise Clause. And the opposition to that united the left and the right alike. The ACLU and Father Newhouse at First Things and everybody in between we're united against it. So what has happened? Well, we think you can still defend religious liberty on terms that are acceptable to secular and religious people, to liberal and conservative people, but that there's been a turn in the most recent debates. There's a particular reason that uh, the debates surrounding sexuality, marriage, abortion, and the like have cut against religious liberty. And I'll get to that at the end of what I'm going to say. So first, what, why religious liberty matters. One reason is that the law is supposed to protect our good. At least it's supposed to set us up to be able to pursue our own flourishing. And one aspect of your good, one way in which you can flourish or not, is integrity. The ability to line up your convictions with your actions. The freedom to pursue the kind of ultimate questions about human life. Is there a God? Where are we coming from? Where are we going? Um, the most basic requirements of morality basically to form your conscience and your religious beliefs in freedom, and then to live by those convictions. And when you get to pursue those questions and live by your honest answers, there's value in that in itself, 
even if your underlying convictions are off. So even if it turns out that there's no religious duty to keep a beard, allowing a Muslim believer to keep a beard is good for the believer. It is good for him to be able to live with integrity. And because being forced to have a certain view about a religious issue or being forced to flout your conscience, whether your conscience involves a secular moral claim or a religious belief, is going to prevent you from realizing integrity, the law needs to make room for integrity. It needs to have some protection for people to live out these convictions in freedom. So it's a pretty simple thing. Integrity matters. It's good for you. It's good for you even when we disagree with your beliefs. And what's good for you is something that the state needs to make room for and needs to allow you to pursue. That, again, is something that liberals and secular people can, can get on board with. Even if a progressive person is not himself or herself a Muslim, he or she will agree that you should be able to grow a beard if it doesn't hurt anybody else and if it's in line with your convictions. Um, even if they themselves aren't vegetarians, they agree you shouldn't be forced to eat meat or maybe you should be free to protest certain institutions or um, that, that are heavily involved in um, the, the food industry. So that's something that's shared. The second thing is it's not just good for the individual you're protecting. It's good for society. So to the extent that we respect religious liberty, we drive home the idea that the state is not the ultimate authority. It has to cede to a higher law, to the higher law that people honestly come by, to their moral and religious convictions. And as soon as it has to make room for conscience, you get the idea that the state needs to be limited. It needs to make room for civil society as something separate from it, for all these other centers of cultural power and authority, what Burke called the little platoons of civil society, everybody between the individual and the state, from associative and expressive and religious associations and churches to Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts and civic associations and all the rest. Both sides of the debate can see that as something really valuable. We don't want the state to be totalizing. We don't want it to be the only authority. Um, and in practice, historically, making room for religious liberty has been the seed of other protections of human rights and civil rights and liberties. Intellectual historians show that as soon as the state started to respect religious liberty, first in the form of the freedom of the church, it began to have a deeper awareness of and respect for the other civil rights and liberties that we all celebrate today under the First Amendment. And then social science shows you that today, even now, the countries that are most respectful of religious liberty and freedom of conscience tend to do best on a whole host of indicators that, again, both sides care about. Um, other human rights and liberties, even the kind of economic institutions and political freedoms that are required for a thriving civil society in, in other ways. So integrity on the one hand, which is good for the person making a claim, and then the benefits of civil society and human rights and liberties on the other hand. These are the things you get when you make room for conscience, when you protect people's freedom to pursue questions about religion and morality and to live by their honest answers wherever we can reasonably accommodate them. Again, so far there's nothing controversial about that much. And in fact, a lot of the progress in civil society that we've seen, a lot of the moral and social and political reforms that everybody today celebrates, 
for example, the push for abolition, for desegregation. Those things had roots in religion in every case. And the reason is that protection for religious liberty leaves this room for dissenting voices to be expressed. And that's the way that you get reform of the majority's views. So then the question is, if we, if we can agree that there's some value in protecting freedom of religion and conscience, how should we protect it? And we think that both of those freedoms require special protections in a way. You need to have, you can't just hope that good policy across the board will mean that people more or less retain these freedoms. You need particular protections for them. Why? Well, not because religion is special, but because conscience, whether it's religious or secular, is fragile. What do I mean by that? Well, with other liberties, if, for example, free speech, if we, if we limit your ability to speak your mind you know, on the sidewalk with a bullhorn at midnight, you retain other ways to express your ideas, as long as that limit on your free speech is reasonable. But with integrity, with conscience, with religion, it's not like that. If, if we prevent you from living out a certain conviction, you're stuck. Your integrity will take a hit. It's not like you can make up for violating your conscience on one issue by trying to double down on living by another belief. So because integrity is fragile in that way, it needs special protections. And we think there are two broad kinds of protections that society has provided and should provide. One is a kind of general ability to get an exemption from a law unless giving you that exemption would harm other parts of the common good. So the policy that today embodies that rule in a lot of states and in the federal government is RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's a law that became extremely controversial in the last 10 years or so, but when it was first introduced in response to the Supreme Court case that I mentioned earlier, it was touted by the left and the right alike. Actually, one of the main proponents of it testifying in Congress was Nadine Strassen, who was then the president of the ACLU. And she said that this would, this would just restore common sense and decent protections for people's freedoms to live out minority religious views. The rule there is basically, there's legal details, but the basics are, if you have a sincere moral or religious objection to, if you have a sincere religious objection to a particular um, law, and protecting your freedom to live by your convictions in that case would not undermine a serious public good, then the law must leave you free to live by your conviction. That's the basic rule. And even though today people think that's just a sort of guise for, a sort of a Trojan horse for bringing in social conservatism under another name, for 20 or 30 years, it has protected a whole range of minority religious views. The, um, the Apache who wants to wear a headdress that has eagle's feathers in it, the Sikh who wants to bring a ceremonial dagger into you know, his, his workspace, the Muslim or Jewish inmate who wants to grow a long beard or have kosher meals, all of these sorts of people have been protected under this law. So it applies even-handedly to, to minority views that progressives will be more sympathetic to, as well as um, Christian, conservative, Jewish, Orthodox views. And it's, again, something that to the extent that it protects integrity. should be something you can support either way. So that's a kind of general but limited protection for religious liberties. General because it doesn't matter what kind of belief we're talking about, but it's limited because if the common good requires it, 
you won't get the exemption. The other kind of policy that we defend in the book for protecting religious liberty and conscience would be more narrow protections on particular heated issues that are categorical protections. So they don't just say, we'll let you be free in this realm as long as it doesn't do too much harm, but we'll let you be free in this realm, period, because we know ahead of time that leaving you free in this one area will not do too much harm. And the best examples of those historically, you know, for the whole of American history, we've had protections, for example, from the draft. So whenever we've had the draft, we've also had protections for conscientious objectors, people who have a sincere uh, moral conviction that pacifism is true, that all war is wrong. We protect their freedom not to go to war. Um, And we don't say, well, only if. We just say, no, this is a realm in which we're going to provide a categorical protection. And then since the 70s, to take a culture war issue, we've had this kind of protection on abortion. So in the 70s, Roe v. Wade says that a woman has a right to choose to have an abortion. But since then, several federal laws, the Church Amendment, the Hyde-Weldon Amendment, and the Coates-Snow Amendment, have protected the freedom of doctors and nurses and hospitals not to be involved in abortions themselves if they don't want to. We don't say, oh, you don't have to be forced to do an abortion unless the woman would have to drive extra far or anything like that. We just say, no, in this realm, we know ahead of time we can give you categorical protections. And in the particular debates we're talking about here, in the most recent culture wars, we think that that kind of policy is embodied in what's called the First Amendment Defense Act, which has been proposed in Congress. And it would basically say, Obergefell says that the law of the land is same-sex marriage. So same-sex couples have to get public benefits and legal recognition of marriage. But you as a private party, whether you're Catholic charities, adoption agencies, whether you're wedding vendors, whether you're educational institutions like Catholic or Mormon uh, or Jewish educational institutions that just think that they have a different view on sexuality or marriage, you will not be punished for living by those views. So if you have a housing policy at a college that doesn't allow same-sex couples or other unmarried couples to cohabit, we will not be able to deny you federal funds. We will not be able to yank your tax-exempt status. If you're an adoption agency like Catholic Charities that wants to place children in the home led by a mother and father, then you'll be free to do that. We will not revoke your license, and we will not revoke our contract with you as the state. Even here, we think this should be a win-win solution. There is no benefit to anybody in shutting down an adoption agency that would otherwise have helped a bunch of couples, and now that it's shut down, is not being able to help anybody. No one is benefited when Catholic Charities closes. Even when Catholic Charities is open, same-sex couples can go to other agencies to get adoptions. So this is another case where we think, in principle, both sides should be able to agree there's nothing wrong with this. It protects integrity. It helps some children find homes that might not, or that might not find them as soon. And it doesn't hurt anybody else. So then why are these cases controversial. And this is what I want to get back to from the beginning and what I'll end with. A concept that you'll be hearing more and more, and you'll hear it in connection with the Colorado um, Masterpiece Cakes case that's just been decided, the the Supreme Court has just decided to take. A concept you'll hear more and more is called dignitary harm. And 
progressives who are opposed to these religious liberty protections that we're talking about increasingly rely on this idea because they realize that in a lot of these cases there are no material harms to others in allowing people to live by their convictions. If you're a baker or a florist or a photographer who has objections to serving same-sex weddings, in almost every case we've ever heard, actually in every case we've ever heard of, there's been some reasonably, reasonably available alternative. You could go down the street or down the block to another vendor. So it's not material harms that are coming from these conscientious choices to dissent from the new views about sex and marriage. So they've shifted to this idea that there's dignitary harm, by which they mean that you're living out by your conviction, you're living out your convictions on these issues, sends in a moral message that's offensive to others. The message that same-sex relationships should be limited to marriage. The message that our bodies as male and female are goods to be accepted rather than bad things to be surgically altered if you, if you understand yourself as trans, transgender. And the thing we want, the point that we make about this is that dignitary harm is an extremely dangerous concept to have the state take on board. If the state is going to limit your freedom of religion or conscience for the sake of protecting dignitary harm, then that directly attacks one of the historic benefits of freedoms of religion and conscience in general. Because remember, one of their great social benefits has been to make room for moral dissent. Taking on board the idea that dignitary harm should undermine freedoms of religion and conscience means that we are going to protect religion less the more it upsets the majority's views. That's a way of shutting off any possibility of religion and conscience being a source of moral reform. Every reform begins as dissent, and dissent that a majority will find offensive. So from the beginning to the end, on the value of integrity, on the benefits to the idea of civil society, to other civil rights and liberties, to the protection of human rights and political institutions that come with protecting religious liberty, and on the kinds of policies that the day before yesterday liberals as well as conservatives could be on board with. We think all of those points you can make to a progressive or to a secular person in terms they'll understand and be able to accept. And push comes to shove on this concept of dignitary harm, and we think there, too, we can take the fight to the other side. There is a real harm in recognizing this idea that we think, as well, conservatives and liberals should be able to understand. Thanks. Great. So um, let me say a couple of words about the book um, in general, and then I have to do the, um, the second half of the title. So the, the book cover, if you see it, says Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. Um, so the first word, debating. This book is um, written in point-counterpoint format. Um, Sharif and I... Um, author half of the book in one voice, um, defending what we think is a sound understanding of religious liberty um, and a sound understanding of discrimination, um, defending a sound understanding to then say where it should be unlawful. Um, Our counterpoint author, uh, John Corvino, is a professor of philosophy at uh, Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, He argues uh, for what he thinks is a sound understanding of religious liberty and what he thinks is a sound understanding of discrimination and when it should be unlawful. Uh, And we disagree a lot. Um, on both of those questions. Uh, We disagree about the nature of religious liberty. Sharif's given you our answer. John will give you a different answer in this book, and he will say that our conception of religious liberty is more akin to religious privilege, uh, that it's special rights for religious people. Um, Then we also disagree about discrimination, what discrimination is, 
when discrimination is unjust, when discrimination should be unlawful, and how it should be made unlawful so that it doesn't burden other civil rights uh, like freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, freedom of association, um, and the like. Uh, so the book's written this way intentionally, so you'll get strong arguments from the left. Um, John would identify as a progressive or a liberal. He's pro-choice on the abortion question. He's uh, pro-same-sex marriage on the marriage question. Uh, Sharif and I would identify as conservatives. We're pro-life. We're pro-traditional marriage. Uh, so the book is meant to be a back and forth uh, intentionally so that readers would get two sets of arguments from both sides that are in conversation with each other. Uh, we try to actually engage each other's arguments uh, and respond and point out what we think are the weaknesses and the strengths. So the second half of the book, or the second half of the title, is discrimination. Um, the reason that we're debating both religious liberty and discrimination is because when those things uh, run up head-to-head, -head, that's where most of the most controversial and interesting um, debates take place. Uh, so people who argue if the owners of Hobby Lobby don't provide coverage for their employees' contraception, they're discriminating against women. Uh, people who argue if a Catholic hospital doesn't do sex reassignment surgeries, they're discriminating against transgender people. Uh, people who argue if a baker, a florist, a photographer doesn't do the same-sex wedding cake or the same-sex wedding flowers, they're discriminating against gays and lesbians. That's kind of where these things um, intersect. So let me say a couple of words about how we think of um, discrimination. Um, but first, why those two things matter uh, is the idea that most religious liberty claims are going to be inversely proportionate to the justification for the underlying law. Uh, what do I mean by that inverse uh, uh, proportion? If the underlying law uh, has like a very, very strong justification, like a necessary justification, let's say our laws against murder, you're not going to be able to have religious liberty exemptions. Uh, this is why we don't have religious liberty exemptions to our homicide laws or to our rape statutes. If the underlying law has a different justification, it's a good law for the majority of people, but it's not a necessary law for each and every last citizen, uh, the law will be more capacious and generous with religious liberty exemptions. Uh, so you can see a law that says uh, vehicles need to have red brake lights. We were able to grant exemptions to Amish people that they could put a red triangle with reflectives. Uh, um, uh, material so that other people's headlights reflect off of the Amish buggy's red triangle since they don't use electricity. We weren't going to say that they had to have uh, red brake lights. Again, the purpose of the law was to promote the common good, in this case, traffic safety. And we could accomplish that goal of promoting traffic safety while also accommodating uh, the Amish. So on any given dispute, you want to ask yourself, is this dispute more like the laws about murder, uh, for which we really can't achieve the purpose of the law while also giving a religious liberty exemption, or is it more like uh, the Amish buggy, uh, or is it more like the uh, Muslim inmate? Uh, normally we say no uh, beards in jail, but we've said that for Muslim inmates they can grow a half-inch uh, beard for religious observance purposes. Um, where does, it, does that jeopardize safety? You can't really hide anything in a half-inch beard. So if the purpose of clean cut in jail is to prevent contraband and things like that, a ceremonial uh, devotional beard wouldn't undermine that purpose. So you're going to have to see that balance. So on discrimination and anti-discrimination laws, uh, we think part of the state's purpose is to promote the common good. Uh, the common good is pluralistic, so we're going to promote religious liberty for a variety of religious beliefs. Sometimes we're going to have to combat discrimination. Uh, we'll have to dis combat discrimination precisely when it prevents 
the common good from being realized, when it prevents citizens from flourishing. And you can think about how we did this in different contexts. In the 1960s, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, it banned discrimination on the basis of race and several other characteristics uh, in public accommodations, among other places. And the idea here was that uh, there was localized monopolies of racist businesses uh, that were preventing African Americans from flourishing, uh, from entering into markets, from moving up uh, in um, kind of economic ladders of mobility. It was preventing them from living the American dream, even though it was all private discrimination. Right? These were private businesses. These were private schools. These were private hospitals, private hotels. And the government said, no, you can't do this because it has public harms. Uh, it's harming an entire class of people uh, from flourishing. And so the law here was pretty um, uh, uh, resolute. There weren't very generous religious liberty exemptions. And it defined uh, actions that took race into considerations just to treat people because of their race less than equal as discriminatory. A decade later, in 1972, Congress passes uh, Title IX. Uh, this is the law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in education. And the problem here that Congress identified was that women and girls were being denied equal educational opportunities. Uh, men got economics, women got home economics. Uh, men got sports teams uh, that were intercollegiate and competitive, and girls got like skipping ropes and things like this. And so they said, look, this is clearly unequal. Uh, we need to do something about this because this is preventing girls and women from flourishing, from exercising their intellectual capacities, from developing into full and equal humans. So they outlaw discrimination on the basis of sex in all federally funded education, uh, which means all public schools and the vast, vast majority of private schools. But here they're sensitive into how they describe and define discrimination. Uh, so they say that separate bathrooms for men and women, separate dorms for men and women, separate sports teams for men and women aren't discrimination on the basis of sex. Notice they didn't say this for separate water fountains for black and white. If you have separate bathrooms or, second, or separate water fountains for black and white, that's unlawful discrimination on the basis of race. But if you have a men's locker room and a woman's locker room, provided they're equal in quality, that's not discriminatory, according to our federal civil rights law. So they were nuanced in how they drew that line. And then the other thing they did was that they provide religious exemptions to any religious school that asked for one. Uh, they said lots of different religious institutions have all sorts of teachings about men and women. Um, Jews have various teachings about who can sit on what side of synagogues during common uh, times of worship. Uh, Catholics have various teachings about who can be ordained and who can't be ordained. We're not going to micromanage uh, religious teachings on sex. So we're going to exempt uh, religious schools from this prohibition altogether, should they ask for it. Some schools asked for it. Some schools didn't ask for it. Now consider the latest type of anti-discrimination law, and this is uh, considered SOGI laws. Uh, SOGI being an acronym that stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Um, these are the laws um, that have created the Supreme Court case that Sharif mentioned that's going up uh, next term, the baker who didn't bake a same-sex wedding cake and then fell into trouble with a local law. Uh, these are the laws that the ACLU is currently using to sue Catholic hospitals that won't do sex reassignment surgeries. Uh, these are the laws that have forced Catholic charity adoption agencies uh, to shut down in several jurisdictions. And the argument here is that um, 
if you won't uh, do an adoption to a same-sex married couple, you're discriminating against them on the basis of their sexual orientation. Or if you won't remove the uterus uh, from a woman who wants to transition from a, to become a man, you're discriminating against her on the basis of her, her gender identity. Uh, I think in both of these cases, uh, they're not defining discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity in a specific and narrow and accurate way. So think about if you're the adoption agency. Uh, the argument here is not um, that gay people are bad people and therefore they can't be parents. Uh, the argument that the adoption agency makes is that the two best dads in the world can't replace a missing mom, and the two best moms in the world can't replace a missing dad. Uh, that men and women are different, they're not interchangeable, and therefore mothers and fathers aren't replaceable. Now you could agree or disagree with uh, that particular conviction about parenting and the importance of both moms and dads uh, to children. But whatever it is, it has nothing to do with sexual orientation. The conviction that uh, complementarity of male and female, of mother and father, matters to a child isn't based on the sexual attraction, desire, action, orientation of the individuals. Uh, so it simply gets the anti-discrimination law wrong if you say that Catholic Charities is discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. What would it look like for Catholic Charities to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation if a soup kitchen that uh, Catholic Charities run was to say, we won't serve you lunch if you're gay? That would be a clear instance of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, taking someone's sexual orientation into consideration where it's irrelevant and then treating them less than equally. So now consider the hospital example. The the two Catholic hospitals that have been sued about this, they're not saying because you identify as transgender, we won't remove your uterus. Uh, what they're saying is we don't remove healthy organs from people when it's not medically required, <coughs> irrespective of your gender identity. So if you're a woman who identifies as a woman or you're a woman who identifies as a man, we're not removing your uterus if the organ is healthy and it's not medically required because we don't think that's good medicine. Now, you can agree or disagree about what the nature of good medicine is for gender dysphoria. Uh, some people think sex reassignment is an appropriate treatment for gender dysphoria. Some people think it's a bad treatment for gender dysphoria. But we shouldn't be saying that one of these perspectives is discrimination and the other is, is justice. Right? This is weighing too much into our anti-discrimination law. Uh, what would discrimination on the basis of gender identity look like in the hospital context? Imagine a hospital that said, we won't do your chemotherapy because you're trans. Then you would see an instance in which a hospital says, we're taking your gender identity into consideration where it doesn't matter to treat you less than equally, discriminating on the basis of gender identity um, precisely to treat someone less than equally. That's not what's going on in the hospital that won't remove someone's uterus when it's not medically required. So I'm just going to close by showing how this could have gone wrong in the abortion context. Um, imagine if after Roe v. Wade, uh, our court said it's discrimination on the basis of sex not to pay for your female employee's abortion in your health care plans. It's discrimination on the basis of sex not to perform abortions if you're the type of doctor who specializes in that sort of medicine otherwise. 
it would have simply defined pro-life medicine and pro-life health care plans as discriminatory. And it would have made it impossible uh, for faithful Catholics and people of other faiths and people who just believe the natural law truth about the dignity of the unborn child, it would have made it impossible for them to be active in the medical profession. It would have made it impossible for employers to offer health care plans to their employees that respect human dignity. So the same thing is now at stake. That principle is at stake in the aftermath of the redefinition of marriage and as we now enter into these debates about gender identity. Uh, will the belief that we're created male and female and that male and female are created for each other, will those simply be defined as discriminatory? And then will it be impossible because they'll say that the, uh, uh, the justification for those laws is such that there can be no religious liberty exemptions? That those laws that ban discrimination on the basis of sex orientation and gender identity are more like laws that ban murder than they are laws that require brake lights on motor vehicles. That's the terrain, and that's the debate that we're going to be facing in the United States uh, in the coming years that we already are in the midst of. Um, so with that, unless Sharif has anything to add, um, we're going to stop and we're going to uh, take your questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll come over with the mic. Hey, um, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about the differences, or assuming that you see them as different, between um, outlying discrimination against interracial marriage versus um, you know, the, the question of same-sex marriage. It's one of the sort of um, devil's advocate mm -hmm. arguments I've heard is that in a society where most people don't recognize um, a distinction between same-sex and opposite-sex marriage, that it's not really possible to keep the one and not the other. Sure. So um, a couple of different ways of thinking about this. Um, one is, uh, all right, so we can start with this thinking about um, how to understand uh, animosity towards interracial marriage and how to understand people who don't believe in same-sex marriage because they're tr uh, the argument here is trying to lump those two things together. Um, no one denied, as far as I can tell, uh, that interracial couples could marry. They knew it was possible for a man and a woman of different races to unite as one flesh and then to create new life and then to unite that new life with both a mom and a dad. What they wanted was that for that not to take place. They didn't want, uh, and normally it was white and black. It wasn't all interracial couples. It was specifically uh, white and black interracial couples. They didn't want that to take place because they wanted to maintain a system of white supremacy. Uh, and so what was at stake here was saying whites are better than blacks, and therefore we shouldn't interact with them on an equal basis. Uh, and since marriage is a voluntary consensual union, we can't allow the most intimate of voluntary uh, union, a marital relationship, to take place. We also don't want interracial uh, children. So there's a form of animosity here that's driving this. It's not deep reflection about the nature of marriage. Uh, no one thought that marriage was somehow uh, about keeping the races separate. It was about uniting the two halves of humanity, male and female. Uh, so if you look at Aristotle and Plato, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin, uh, they all say marriage, a colorblind institution, but not a sex-blind institution. It's a complementary relationship, male and female. But it has nothing to do with black, white, uh, Asian, Hispanic. That doesn't enter into the philosophy or theology of marriage. So why was it that someone was against interracial marriage? Uh, first, it was because of slavery. Uh, you can't enslave a race of people if you allow them to freely intermarry and then have interracial children. 
And then after the end of slavery, it was simply about white supremacy. Um, now ask yourself, what motivates Baronel Stutzman, uh, the 72-year-old grandmother who won't do wedding flowers for a same-sex uh, wedding? Is it some form of like hetero supremacy that she thinks straight people are better than gay people? Uh, is her belief that marriage union a man and a woman have something to do with men are better than women or women are better than no? She thinks it's one of each, right? But what she thinks is that two men or two women can't unite as one flesh. Uh, there's no way for two men or two women to unite in a marital act. There's no way for that union to even have the potential to create new life, uh, let alone to then unite that new life with both a mom and a dad. So the argument here isn't that gay people shouldn't get married. It's that two people of the same sex can't get married because of what marriage is. Uh, and that conviction has nothing to do with a supremacy of one sort or uh, um, oppressing people, uh, stigmatizing people, treating people less than equally of the other sort. Um, so while it's been a very effective argument, uh, people who say, well, look, if you're against gay marriage, you're just like the bigots from two generations ago who were against interracial marriage. It actually has no intellectual foundation on, on either the history, the philosophy, or the theology. And the last thing I'll add, and I'll let Sharif say more if he wants, is that as a practical matter, it also has no historical comparison. Um, if you look at um, racism, uh, especially in the South, especially prior to the Civil Rights Act of 64, you paid no social cost for being a public racist. Uh, we still had public racists in the Senate uh, within my lifetime. Uh, and some people would say we still do, but I mean, if, if you want to add that, but, but not in the way, they're not proud of it in the way that they once were, right? Um, today, uh, the baker, the florist, the photographer who objects to same-sex marriage, they pay a huge cost in the media, uh, in Yelp reviews, in boycotts. Um, the idea that, the own, that you need the government to add up and kind of bully up on these people, um, I just find to kind of be um, uh, uh, very hard to square with practical realities. Whereas I think we did need the government in the 60s to come in because you could have a town full of racists that wouldn't have any opportunities uh, for African Americans. Uh, I would say racism today in the United States is worse uh, than homophobia, for example. Um, it's hard to quantify these things, um, but, but this entire month of uh, Pride Month, I saw much more coverage than during Black History Month. And I saw many more rainbow flags, especially at the elite sectors of society this past month, uh, than I saw elite interest in Black History Month. And so I just think the power dynamic is very different on this question, which is, which is an additional to like the philosophical stuff, just a practical difference. Gentlemen, thank you for speaking this evening. Really appreciate it. Uh, Sharif mentioned the FATA or the First Amendment Defense Act, which has been proposed by Senator Lee. Uh, quick question regarding that. Regarding that, does that, and just if you can expand on it as well, does that go far enough to protect the examples that you mentioned, Ryan? And furthermore, how well does it really protect federal employees, and specifically DOD. Okay, so I, I, I should probably, yeah. So um, Sharif is uh, clerking and doing a philosophy PhD, so he's not following the intricacies of pending federal legislation, and that's my day job, so I, I will field this one as well. Um, it wouldn't touch the Baker Flowers photographer or adoption agency at all. Uh, the First Amendment Defense Act is limited to federal um, uh, jurisdiction. So it, it can tie the federal government's hand. And what the First Amendment Defense Act says is the federal government shall not penalize someone when it comes to their nonprofit tax status, a license, an accreditation, 
a grant or a contract. And it's really just those five areas. If that person or entity acts on the belief that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, um, it does not apply to federal employees in the scope of their employment, nor to federal contractors in the scope of their contract. Outside of the scope of the contract, outside of the scope of your employment, you can't be penalized. Uh, so if you work for the federal government and you post something on Facebook, you couldn't then lose your job over it. But inside of your job, if the government is making you do something that violates your belief about marriage, the First Amendment Offense Act would not offer you protection. Um, for the state cases you asked about, um, I would look to the Mississippi law uh, that two we uh, last week the Fifth Circuit Court uh, said could go into effect. A district court had said that it was unconstitutional, and then last week the Fifth Circuit Court uh, said that the people who complained about it didn't have standing. And the reason they didn't have standing was that it had caused them no harm. Uh, to bring a lawsuit in federal court, uh, you, there needs to be some cognizable harm. And they said this law, which simply protects uh, people from violating their beliefs about marriage, hadn't caused anyone harm yet. They left it open that if it does one day cause harm, you can come back to our court and we'll hear your case. But I would look at the Mississippi law uh, for the state version. Hi. Thank you for your talk. So you make a very interesting argument that's very uh, convincing when you listen to the whole thing, but it's slightly complicated. So it seems to me that a lot of people would think, well, this sounds a lot like the argument you made on traditional marriage where you're not discriminating against the same-sex couples, you're discriminating against um, because it's the definition of marriage. But it seemed that the that debate didn't come up the way I think you guys hoped because people just took the idea that people should be treated the way they want to be treated. And the left didn't have to, to confront this because they assumed that the, uh, their side was winning. So what do you think about the possibility? How do we, uh, people who support the traditional view on this, support uh, show the left that they uh, won't just win by running out the clock? And then two, would it perhaps be an easier argument to make uh, it about natural rights in the sense that the the progressive side seems to think that there's a right to receive the cake, to receive the service, uh, as opposed to focusing on the right of giving things. Yeah, I would say a couple of things about that. Um, one is that we have a much better rhetorical advantage in this debate than we did in the traditional marriage debate. In the marriage debate, we were trying to defend a whole comprehensive vision of marriage against particular objections. Well, why not this? Well, why not that? How is this particular household going to hurt you? And so on. And we did the best job we could manage in the book and in the later book that Ryan did, um, solo authored, and in a bunch of debates. But there was that rhetorical disadvantage. It was, an, it was not an even playing field. The other side never had to give their own vision of what marriage was. In this debate, we are the side of live and let live. We're on the side of leaving people... of accepting the fact that the government has made available certain kinds of status and benefits, but then saying that private parties should be free to live and let live, to live by their own convictions about those kinds of relationships. So the first thing to see is that there's not some easy arc from the victories that the progressive left has won on these other debates and this one. In every other case, it was about either overturning a criminal law <coughs> that restricted some people's freedom, whether it was an anti-sodomy law or otherwise, and then about making sure that the government assist, gave concrete benefits to those couples who wanted to live by their own convictions, and then to give them legal status. So we went from anti-sodomy laws to civil unions to same-sex marriage. But now we're not talking about increasing freedom 
or even increasing public recognition, we're talking about limiting freedom. We're talking about throwing people, giving them hundreds of thousand dollars of fines in some cases, and even in some cases potential for other forms of liability or even jail, if they won't live by your view of marriage. So you, in, in the most direct sense, these policies are trying to impose secular liberal ideology on others. They're not trying to promote anybody's freedom. They're not even trying to promote your access to a cake. They're trying to limit people's freedom just to make a political point. That's another way of seeing what I was saying about the dignitary harm. When, when it's not that you know, my living by my conscience is going to deprive anyone of a cake or of flowers or of a hotel to stay in or, anything, or of a university to go to or anything like that, the only thing left for a law to do is to limit my freedom to keep me out of certain markets just to make a political point, just to stigmatize people who have a traditional view on marriage. And that's a very illiberal idea, and if you frame it in that way, I think you can drive that point home. Thank you both for talking. I look forward to reading your book. Uh, I'd just like to ask a question about your conception of discrimination. Um, the way you fleshed it out, it sounds to me very much like it focuses solely on animus. And in United States law, there's a separate branch or a separate prong oftentimes recognized for discrimination, which is a disparate impact. So the example would be with abortion that, you know, the doctors are not, they have no hatred or dislike or they're not trying to act actively disadvantage women. They're, but the effect of their refusing to give abortions only affects women. Men could never be affected by this. So it disparately impacts women. And so I was wondering if, if your view addresses that and if I could just throw one more thing in, which is that if, if not, and you can you know, certainly limit it just to animus, but if you're limiting it just to animus, that seems to me like it could be problematic in the sense that you're asking the government, when you're asking a, legisla a legislator or a judge to hand out an exemption to a generally applicable law mm -hmm. for your particular religious belief, to actually inquire into what's going on in your mind. You know, do you have a hatred of this thing, or is it based off something else? And I think that that gets into all sorts of murky First Amendment areas that, as a nation, we probably don't want to go into. Great, great question. So um, I don't think it's based on animus. The very first question is, is it even taking into account the uh, classification that has been protected? So before you can say that it's unjust discrimination and that it's unlawful discrimination, you have the first answer, is it even discriminatory? Um, and for that to be the case, it has to mean that you're taking something into consideration that you ought not be, or you're failing to take something into consideration when you should be. So the fourth example that I didn't have time tonight is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so th this would speak to your thing about animus. Um, sometimes it's just neglect, right? You build a storefront and you have three steps in the front and no wheelchair ramp. And it's not because you hate disabled people. You just didn't think that, oh, yeah, I should make sure my building, my storefront is wheelchair accessible. And, and it's when you should have thought about it. Right? And so the ADA is passed to make sure that certain establishments of certain sizes are going to be uh, um, accessible to people in wheelchairs and, and various other uh, uh, protections for people with disabilities. Um, but the idea there is not that someone is actually full of animosity uh, towards someone with disabilities, but they're not taking something into consideration, uh, their welfare, when they ought to be. But the flip side of this is that when someone is taking something into consideration when they ought not to be, uh, so in the case of uh, racially segregated uh, bathrooms, they're saying your skin color determines which bathroom you're, you're using. But skin color has nothing to do with what goes on in the bathroom. 
Um, another type of discrimination, though, you could say, look, you're discriminating on the basis of sex when you say men go to this bathroom, women go to this bathroom, but it's not an invidious form of discrimination um, because you're not treating men differently than women in a way that says they're better than women. You're actually respecting their equality by saying each sex needs a certain amount of privacy. And so in the locker room, bathrooms, we separate them. Um, so it's not so much a, an analysis of animus as much as is it fitting, the distinction you're making. Uh, so the distinction between the irrelevancy of skin color to water fountains, the relevancy of biology to locker rooms. There's a fittingness there. Um, what I was pointing out in the case of um, the hospital that won't do sex reassignment surgery is they never even take gender identity into consideration. They're not saying because you are trans and then finish the sentence. They're saying regardless of your uh, gender identity, whether you're trans or cis makes no difference to us. We don't remove healthy organs when not medically required. Um, so my point there was not about, you know, is it animus driven? What's in their head? As much as, you know, what is the act that they're engaged in? It has no bearing on the gender identity of the patient. So it couldn't even be classified as discrimination on the basis of gender identity. Um, for a separate discussion, I, I think disparate impact theory is, is bad uh, and we should uh, avoid it. But, but that's neither here nor there for the purpose of this uh, immediate discussion. Do you want to, you're, you're the lawyer on the, or? Yep, that's good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sharif, you, thank you, both of you. Um, you surprised me because you put forth a relativist argument, live and let live, right? And I wanted to know if you guys thought through, is that the only argument that we have now in carving out an exception or... Because it's clearly you've thought it through. <laughs> and maybe you can help all of us understand why that's the best... That has to be the first time I'm accused of not being judgmental <laughs> enough. Uh, <laughs> So anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> First time for everything. So uh, I, I don't think it's relativist for a couple of reasons. First, in the book, we found everything we're talking about in a natural law philosophy that says, here are the human goods. They're these and they're not. Otherwise, these are objective goods, life, health, religious uh, integrity, and so on. And the law has to be set up to protect and promote those goods. So it's founded in sort of objective moral claims all the way down. But one of the things that we think you can ground in objective moral claims is the idea that the state should be limited. That the more limited the state is, the less it intrudes on people's ability to take initiative, to form their own associations, and to form their own identities in that way, the better, objectively, people will be. So the live and let live thing is rhetorically useful, partly because it's used by people who are and aren't relativists, but we think you can give it a principled foundation, which is that where the state doesn't absolutely have to coerce somebody for the sake of some identifiable part of the common good, it shouldn't. And the argument we make over and over in every specific case that, we can, that, that these conflicts present is that there is no serious common good at stake in forcing somebody to do something. Therefore, you shouldn't force them. The only thing I'd add to that is uh, the, the level of moral analysis. I think it sounds like it could be relativistic because we're saying lots of individual choices with which we disagree should be legal. And that might sound like relativism. The reason it's not is that we're grounding the moral argument at the level of policy. 
So, for example, I think lots of people say lots of stupid and immoral stuff. Uh, so I'm not a relativist, and I will tell Sharif when he's saying something stupid or something immoral. But I think he ought to have a right to say it. So, and the reason why is I think human beings as a community will flourish better in a society in which the government can't censor our speech. Uh, so we would say that the right to free speech is based upon the human good. It's based upon human nature and how we need to be able to say things that aren't quite right in order for education and debates and disagreements to take place. And we don't want the government censoring, for example, this book, saying we think John's right, we think Ryan and Sharif are wrong, and because we're not relativists, only John gets to publish his portion of the book, and Sharif and Ryan don't. Um, so we were, And the same thing is true for religion. Uh, I believe Catholicism is true, but I don't think that that means that people who disagree with me are doing anything uh, immoral as they live out their religious convictions. Um, this is where uh, Aquinas says even an, uh, even an erring conscience has to be followed. You have to form your conscience, and then you have to act on the best attempt that you have made at forming your conscience to seek out the truth, the good, and the beautiful. Um, so to say that we want political space uh, for people to do this, uh, to seek out the truth and then write books that express the truth, to seek out the truth about God and then lead their moral, their religious lives in accordance with that, and I might come to a Catholic conclusion, someone else might be a Jewish conclusion, someone else an evangelical conclusion. I'm not relativistic about which one of those religions is true, but I don't think it's the government's job uh, to be coercing someone on its understanding of religious truth. So does, does, that, does that clarify? Yep. Okay, we have time for one more quick question. This may not be quick. Live and let live. What would you do about the religions or even the people who believe in multiple marriages? It always seems to be a man can have more than one wife, not a wife can have more than one husband. But we have a homegrown religion, Mormonism, which had to give that up in order to become part of the union, still has many sects who haven't given that up. And then we have, shall we say, an imported religion, Islam, which holds that belief. And concomitant with that, what would you do about age at marriage? Our state laws limit the age. There are many religions that don't. So I would say the same, the, the seeds of the answer are in the answer I just gave, which is that it depends on the impact of the, on the common good. So leaving people free to live by their traditional view of marriage being a man and a woman doesn't harm anybody materially. Leaving men free to take many wives imposes very significant harms on women, especially on the women who are involved, on the women who might be within his field, within his, um, within his social uh, circle. And it, it, usually, it almost always involves serious jealousies, the inequality of women both socially because of the asymmetry you just pointed out, but also materially, the, the kinds of conditions in which they tend to live, the tendency of relationships of that kind to involve abuse, and so on. So it's very easy to build out a very concrete case in the common good for banning those kinds of relationships. And if the, I'll just add, and if the analysis looked differently, so if polygamous relationships uh, functioned in a way that didn't have those costs, um, then the uh, conclusion of that balancing test might come out the other way. And it's worth adding that Aquinas himself, whom no one would accuse of being a relativist, had the same view, basically. He said, look, there are some vices that we should not ban, not because they're not objectively vices, but because other objective goods would be harmed if we tried to ban them, that it would do too much harm to have enforcement of particular laws um, for those laws to be worth passing. So in any you know, 
since the fall in any concrete human society, you're going to have to have some vices that go unregulated because of objective truths about the human good. Thank you so much, Ryan and Sharif, for joining us tonight. And for any young professionals in the audience, we are now accepting applications for the 2017-2018 Leonine Forum classes here in Washington, D.C., held here at the CIC, and in New York City as well. Um, so please visit our website at CICDC.org or LeonineForum.org for more information. Thank you again so much.